Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, it's that time of the year that we are to be thankful. Certainly is, Jimmy. Thanksgiving is one of my favorite times of the year, and it's not just because of the the great meal that we're going to have and the family time that we're going to spend together, but it is truly a time for us to give thanks for all the promises that God has given to us in His Word, not the least of which is His prophetic promises that we look forward to looking into every week here. Yes, exactly right, Rick. You know, as Christians, the two things we can do to stand up for Christ are to live according to His Word and grow our own knowledge of him. Christ said, let your light shine before men. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. This means that we should live and act in a way that supports the gospel. We should also arm ourselves with knowledge, both of the gospel and of the world around us. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your heart set apart Christ as the Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But to do this with gentleness and respect, Rick, all we can do is live and teach as Christ would and let him take care of the rest. On today's program, we've got a lot to cover. It's Thanksgiving week, but we're also examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Let's get started with our first, Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have Ken Timmerman with me. He is our expert on geopolitical affairs, and he joins us just about every week to talk about what's going on around the world. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let's get started on the geopolitical scene here, and we'll start with the summit that took place in California this week between President Xi of China and President Biden. Can you tell us about that? What news came out of that situation there? I think the bottom line, Rick, is that both sides wanted to dial back the tensions that have been building over the past two years between China and the United States, both militarily and commercially. You know, we've talked several times on this show about the near miss encounters between Chinese military aircraft and U.S. B-52s or surveillance aircraft in international airspace. Just a week ago, uh, one of their planes came within 10 feet of a B-52. I mean, that is that is really near midair collision kind of flying. And I think she and, and Biden both wanted to dial that back. I'm not sure that they accomplished that. There wasn't a great deal said about military to military relations, except that they were going to renew talking to each other, which, okay, talk is talk. On the fentanyl front, which is very important to the United States, uh, she made a promise that he would begin to investigate uh, sales of fentanyl to the United States. And and people don't always realize this, Rick, but, you know, 100,000 Americans die every year from fentanyl poisoning. 100,000 is enormous. It is a catastrophe. And it is all coming from companies controlled by the People's Liberation Army. And President Xi has his thumb on those companies. And until now, he has done nothing. Unfortunately, the Biden White House has uh, acted as they have in other cases. They preemptively uh, withdrew sanctions against those Chinese companies on a promise that the Chinese would crack down. We'll see if they do. Uh, I'm not sure that they will, but that is something at least that may be positive coming out of the summit. The final thing, and the most important thing, I think of all for President Xi, uh, is his nightmare is U.S. onsourcing. It's the United States companies and the government bringing back 
our industrial base from communist China, where we have sent it for the past 30 to 40 years. Remember, that was one of Donald Trump's main campaign points. Uh, he wanted to bring back manufacturing from communist China because they were ripping us off. She is terrified that we will accomplish that. So I think he is he is there in addition to meeting Biden. He was in San Francisco meeting uh, presidents and CEOs of major U.S. high tech corporations. He wants to keep the high tech flowing. He wants to keep the investment flowing because the Chinese economy is not doing so great these days. And he needs that investment and that high technology. Well, we are certainly China watchers here, and we will continue to report on them, but we're going to move away from them now, and we're going to focus on Iran for a little bit here. And since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, they have been on an execution spree, basically cutting down any anti-regime activists. They are taking advantage of this war and the world's attention to kind of do their dirty work at home, aren't they? They like to kill in silence. They like to kill in the dark. Uh, they're very happy when the world attention is focused on some other problem uh, elsewhere uh, and uh, they can eliminate, they can basically empty their prisons and hang all the dissidents who are there in their prisons. Uh, they've executed over 100 people since the Hamas killing spree on October 7. This is about par for the course. On uh, an average year, Rick, they're killing between 600 and 1,000 dissidents. People don't realize this. Uh, the Islamic regime in Iran has one of the highest execution rates, capital punishment rates of any country in the world, including communist China per capita. So it's just what they do. They kill their dissidents. They don't let them come back for another day. Well, Ken, that brings to mind the fact that much of Iran was protesting against this authoritarian, religious, Islamic government, the hijab protest that we talked about many times on this program. And to my mind, I believe that we missed an opportunity to support the Iranian citizens because of a nonsensical policy of trying to appease Iran. What do you think, Ken? Yeah, I think we have missed an opportunity, and not just over the past year. You know, I have many friends in the Iranian-American community, uh, people who support the pro-freedom movement. Uh, one of them, Lisa Daftari, is a, a Fox News contributor. She just won an award from a pro-Israel group for standing up for Masa Amini, the, the young Kurdish woman who sparked the hijab protest in 2022 after she was killed in prison by the regime. Well, before we move off the subject of Iran, one more question, Ken. As this war has started, and much of this war is being fought by Iranian proxies, and Hamas, of course, an Iranian proxy, but the other Iranian proxies are not fully engaging, which could cause Israel all kinds of problems. And of course, Iran itself is not fully engaging with Israel. Can you tell me, because of all the rhetoric that we hear from Iran over the years, you would think that this would be the opportunity that they are waiting for. Is this something where they're just waiting for the right moment or are they worried about repercussions? Uh, you know, it's, it's going to sound odd when I say this, Rick, but the Iranian regime is very cautious. Uh, they start off with a bang. They kick the hornet's nest. They launch Hamas on October 7th you know, on this murderous, horrible killing spree. And then they sit back and wait. Well, uh, what's Israel going to do? Are they really going to go after us or are they just going to go after Hamas? They do the same thing with the United States. They have hit our troops in the Middle East 52 times, 52 attacks since October 7th. And we have only responded four times with F-16s dropping bombs on safe houses in Syria. So they, they engage in an extremely violent action and then they sit back and wait to see how either Israel or the United States is going to respond. I think that is their MO. 
They're not yet ready for all-out war because they know they will lose an all-out war with either the United States and Israel. But they are always, always, Rick, pushing the envelope. They are kicking the tiger, trying to see how far they can go, how much they can get away with. Uh, and, I, and then they step back and say, uh, oh, no, not us. Let's have a ceasefire. Well, Ken, let's continue to talk about the Israel-Hamas war. We look at this situation, and President Biden has been pretty supportive of Israel so far, but he has all kinds of international and domestic pressure coming against him to try to get him to pull his support for Israel. How long can and how long will President Biden continue to support Israel? I think Biden is taking a very close look at the polls. He's taking a close look at the divisions in his own party, and up until now, there are far more Democrats supporting Israel than Democrats supporting Hamas. And uh, although those Democrats supporting Hamas are very vocal, AOC and Talib and, and a number of others, they are not very numerous. So I think he's watching the numbers. Uh, his problem is going to be when he gets into the primary season with Jill Stein and Cornell West, who have both come out against the war. If those two take away four, five, six percent from Biden, if they maintain a third party challenge and are there in the general election, he could lose the election over this war. So I think he's looking at it very carefully for now. He is solidly behind Israel. But, you know, we're still hearing lots of rumors about him uh, putting out feelers to Benny Gantz and to Yair Lapid and to others to see if they can find an alternative to Netanyahu. Because one thing is certain, the Democrat Party despises Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, they have tried to undermine him since Bill Clinton was president, and they have spent money. They've sent political consultants to Israel to help the opposition party against Bibi Netanyahu. If they could find an alternative to him, they would. But for now, Biden will continue to support Israel. Well, Ken, my final question for you, and this may be the toughest question I've had for you in a while, but uh, coming this week before we speak to you again, we'll be having Thanksgiving. This is a great time here in the States and a great time, a great time for family as we look forward to all the things we can be thankful for. So I, I thought I would ask you from a geopolitical point of view, but also maybe from a personal point of view, what can we be thankful for and maybe tough in the world that we are living in right now because there are so many things taking place that we are very concerned about, but what can we be thankful for? Well, you know, Rick, we could be just that much closer to the rapture. Uh, next week, <laughs> you and I might not be here. We might be talking to each other in some other place using some other language. Who knows? Uh, it's not for us to know the time and the place, right? But uh, you have this sense, you really do have this sense that uh, world events are moving towards the culmination of God's plan. And uh, although hails a great deal of pain and a great deal of suffering, there is the ultimate joy in knowing that we are part of God's plan. But you know, on a very personal level, I am thankful every year for life, for liberty, for love, the love of my wife, and I'm just in love with my Savior for having kept me alive in so many times of great peril. I would not be here without Jesus and without him having saved me quite literally, both physically and spiritually. And you can read about some of those some of those times of great peril in my book, and the rest is history. They are amazing stories, uh, amazing grace in many ways. Well, I can certainly attest to the fact, Ken, that it is both an educational and entertaining book, and I recommend it to our listeners. Well, Ken, thank you so much for the efforts you put forth to be on the program. We appreciate it. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Rick, and God bless.
Well, let's take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan with our Middle East News Update, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Kramer with Mission Network News. Could another October 7th type of attack come from Hezbollah in the north? That's the question on the minds of many in Israel now. Around 200,000 Israelis have fled their homes at both the northern and southern borders. Eric Mock with Slava Gospel Association says their ministry supports Russian-speaking churches in Israel, delivering groceries to the displaced. Central to the food distribution is relationship building, which also opens doors for the gospel. Pray for spiritual fruit in Israel. And God uses a surprising encounter to make his work happen. Mission Christ President Reverend Jason Wolford recently met a pastor's wife who teaches music over Zoom to students in Liberia. She was struggling to send them new instruments. At the same time, Mission Cry was preparing a shipping container full of repurposed Bibles and books to Liberia. The ministries came together for the shipment and God's glory. More at missionnews.org. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this segment of our program is what we call the Middle East News Update. We take a look at news coming out of the Middle East in general and Israel in particular. To do that, we have our good friend, author and journalist Dave Dolan, a man with 30 years of experience reporting from Israel. He joins us just about every week to talk about what's going on in Israel. And there is certainly, especially since October 7th, there is certainly a lot going on now. Dave, thank you for joining us. Glad to be with you, Rick. Well, Dave, as you've been doing for the last several weeks, you've been giving us an update. Where are we at? Things are happening at a rapid pace. Can you tell us right now what is the latest, what is going on in Israel? Well, of course, Rick, today we mark the sixth weekly anniversary of the terrible massacre that occurred in uh, near the Gaza Strip, uh, 1,200 Israelis killed. By the way, the New York Times reporting early this week that they found on the dead bodies of some of the Hamas uh, terrorists plans to go all the way to Hebron, to the southern West Bank or Judea, and cut off Israel entirely. And they had other proof of that that I won't go into. But what they did do was obviously bad enough, and the war that uh, was resulted from it is uh, ongoing. 
The Israelis are preparing now to move to the south of the Gaza Strip to Khan Yunus. That's the second biggest city of about 200,000 people normally, but there's more, have been more there because of people fleeing the north. And that is because that is a center, the second biggest city, the second biggest center of Hamas and Islamic Jihad. They're urging all the residents to go to the coast. There's a safe zone there. And they they won't attack there. There'll be no action there. So it's really close by, so they won't have far to go. But that's the next phase. Uh, meanwhile, of course, they've been up in Gaza City all week uh, doing um, operations in and around a Shifa hospital uh, where they discovered a tunnel shaft just outside going in. And, of course, the bodies of two slain Israeli prisoners, uh, hostages, both female, a 65-year-old woman who has breast cancer and obviously hasn't been getting treatment probably for the last six weeks. She had just started that, her husband killed in the massacre, and then a a young woman, a 21-year-old soldier, but she wasn't in Gaza acting as a soldier. She was kidnapped along with the others, and they found her body. Hamas says Israeli airstrikes killed her. That may or may not be the case, but of course it wasn't at all intentional. The other woman, the elderly woman, was clearly killed by somebody else. And they operated in the hospital all week. They found three or four weapons caches inside, uh, hundreds of, of rifles and ammunition, RPGs even, and some more advanced. But they still believe, of course, that underneath the hospital, deep underneath, is the one of the command centers, actually the main one, for Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Um, they haven't gotten down there yet, Rick, because, of course, There are probably, undoubtedly, still Hamas gunmen all over the place down there and Islamic Jihad with them. And so they're taking it very, very slowly. And Prime Minister Netanyahu said on Friday that um, the IDF believed that all of the hostages, or most of them, were indeed being held underneath that hospital. But they believe now they were moved to the south. And how could they do that? Well, they've got these series of tunnels. And Israel wasn't yet uh, around to prevent that. But again, they found these two bodies. In the north, we had a lot more action, Rick. Uh, All week, we had Hezbollah attacking pretty much every day and Israel responding to that. We had uh, casualties, uh, several dead and scores uh, wounded. Uh, One near Kibbutz Manara killed a soldier and wounded some others. Uh, We had attacks again over the Syrian border uh, onto the Golan Heights. Israel, of course, striking back in Lebanon. And they also uh, uh, performed for the first time an offensive uh, strike, it seemed, because nothing had happened in a few hours beforehand. And they went and attacked a couple uh, Hezbollah targets. So, and of course, we had more activity, more attacks on U.S. bases in the region. Uh, 54, I think, is the latest number. We had three on Friday. And more, most important and daring, we had a rocket attack on the USS Kearney, which is a, a destroyer that's in the Red Sea. That was from Yemen, but uh, really the Israelis and the Americans probably, too, believe it's Iran itself launching these, their revolutionary guards. That was intercepted, but it was the first attack directly on a U.S. ship from Yemen in some time. So that was disturbing. So the war goes on, Rick. And of course, there's all the worldwide implications and and all of that and marches and, and all of that and the people of Israel 
not happy to be going into their seventh week of war now. But again, more information, Rick, is still coming up about the horrors that were perpetrated on October 7th by Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Just unbelievable stuff. And the funerals go on. Over 50 soldiers killed now in Gaza. And of course, uh, several hundred were killed in the original attack. But the Israelis are carrying on as best they can under the circumstances. Well, Dave, for the most part, the war has been going relatively well for Israel. They're in charge in Gaza. The war in the north has not expanded like many thought it would. So there's many things that Israel can be thankful for as to what's going on right now. But I am worried about what could happen. What is the other shoe to drop? What should Israel be worried about? Well, that something might provoke Hezbollah to get uh, fully involved. Uh, I don't mean Israel doing that, but something that happens in Gaza that Israel does mistakenly bomb a hospital, for instance, or something like that happens and the world opinion does turn, or Iran orders them to open up fire fully. That's out of Israel's hands if that happens. But of course, the two U.S. aircraft carrier groups in the region are very helpful. There's no doubt about that. And the Gerald R. Ford in particular, just off the coast of the Gaza Strip, not very far anyway, it's uh, not right there, but in the vicinity. And of course, it has a range of well over a thousand miles of aircraft, etc. So those are all helpful for Israel. They are thrilled, frankly, Rick, in Jerusalem that the Abraham Accords appear to be mostly holding. We had the UAE this week and Bahrain both call upon Hamas to release all of these hostages. Certainly the children and women and negotiations for that are supposedly still continuing with Qatar, but uh, Israel hasn't been too thrilled with the offers that have been made so far. But yes, you know, uh, it's, it's going relatively well, but we've had the heaviest clashes that the IDF has faced, Rick, since the Yom Kippur War 50 years ago. We haven't seen this heavy of exchanges in any of the wars in between then, and there's been several, as you know, especially, of course, in 1982, the Lebanon War, and we had the Gulf War with scuds coming in and all that. The Israelis just have to hold together, and they know it. And uh, I have to say that the discovery of these two female bodies uh, very much put pressure on Netanyahu to try harder to get the hostages free. But it also, I heard from friends, doubled the resolve, as it were, of the Israeli soldiers and the people to carry on this fight until the end. Because who would take a 65-year-old woman over uh, who has breast cancer after killing her husband and, and killing? You know, but just terrible stuff going on. And so they're resolved to to win this. Uh, They they really have no choice. And, uh, you know, again, we'll just see. But it is not up to just Israel alone, of course, and how well they do. It's what Washington does and Britain and France. But especially in this case, what Iran decides to do, if they stay out, then everything will calm down in time. If not, then we have another and a larger phase coming. Dave Dolan giving us a wartime update. Well, Dave, I appreciate you keeping us informed basically almost every day since this war started and what's taking place in Israel. I'd like to change the subject just a little bit. Coming up this week is Thanksgiving. And with all of this news, I asked the same question of Ken Timmerman before you, and I said, this is going to be a very difficult question for you to answer. But if you could, we uh, have much to be thankful for from a Israeli perspective or a Middle East perspective. Could you give us something that we could be thankful for as we go through Thanksgiving here? 
Well, I would just say this, Rick, Am Israel Chai, the nation of Israel lives. And a hundred years ago, there was no nation of Israel. Uh, 76 years ago, there wasn't. And 75 years ago, it was created. And what, six Arab nations supported by the Soviet Union and others tried to crush it from the start, from the nascent days. They tried again in 67. They tried again in 73. They tried again in 82. Scuds came in 91 from Saddam. But guess what? Israel is still here. Two uprisings, all the other stuff that's happened, still here. And it is the sign of all signs, as you and I know, that the Lord's return is near and that the kingdom of God is coming to this earth. And that is definitely something to be very thankful for, especially as the days definitely get darker on planet Earth. Well, that is certainly a great answer, Dave. The fact that the nation of Israel existed is tangible evidence of Bible prophecy being fulfilled. Well, thank you so much for what you do to keep our listeners informed. You've been doing a great job in the weeks and days and months since October 7th. We appreciate it, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. God bless. Well, we're going to take a break right now on Prophecy Today, but when we come back, we're going to have a new guest. Jim Scudder Jr. is going to talk to us about the Rally for Israel in Washington, D.C., and then we're going to talk to Pastor Paul Blair about the origins of Thanksgiving. That's all right ahead, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Myanmar's junta government faces its biggest challenge since taking power in a 2021 coup. Three rebel groups formed an alliance in late October. Today, they're gaining ground against government forces. Armed ethnic groups have been fighting Myanmar's central government for greater autonomy for decades. AMG International works alongside local Christians to deliver help and hope in the name of Jesus. Then, believers in Ghana, West Africa, are using the Jesus film to reach unreached people groups within their borders. Samuel Afrifa with One Way Africa travels to some of the most remote parts of northern Ghana. Since 2017, he and a small band of missionaries have reached more than 380,000 people with this evangelistic film. Over 43,000 have responded in faith to Christ. Join One Way Africa in praying for God to raise up more missionary writers, plus the support needed for this critical ministry outreach. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries, I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, this last week, there was a big demonstration in Washington, D.C. for the Jewish people. And we thought we would get a firsthand account from another ministry leader, Jim Scudder. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have got Jim Scudder Jr. from In Grace Ministries. We appreciate him being on the program today. Jim, thanks for being here. Hey, thank you, Rick. And uh, listen, you guys, I uh, have fond memories of your dad. I miss him. Mm. I love mm. the way that he just I love the Bible and prophecy and, and made it exciting for all of us. Well, we really love to hear those kind words, but it's always wonderful to hear about the impact that he's out on people. Well, this is the first time we have had you on our program. So if you could, could you just let our listeners know a little bit about yourself and your ministry? Well, I was a pastor's kid, so I grew up in church. My dad started our ministries in 1971, and we're a Baptist church in Chicago, in the Chicago area. And uh, he passed away three years ago. But uh, I've continued on the ministry. It's a growing and thriving church. 
Uh, we have Christian schools and Bible college, Day Spring Bible College and Seminary. And we also do a, a media ministry called In Grace. So we're on 500 radio stations and uh, TBN every Wednesday night, the uh, largest Christian television network in the world. So God has given us gr- great opportunities to share the gospel through media as well. You also have a great YouTube channel, In Grace with Jim Scudder Jr. is the name of the channel, and there's all kinds of content in there. We've got a lot of content from Israel, and so it's some really great stuff. We encourage our listeners to go there. Well, the reason I had you on the program today is you were at the rally that took place this week in support of Israel. I want to see if I can get a report from you. Who was there? What were they talking about? What was going on there? What was the atmosphere and the feeling like there in Washington, D.C.? Well, I'll just tell you this. It felt, while we were there, it felt historic. It felt electric. Um, The largest gathering, pro-Israel gathering ever, and to be part of that, I thought, was just amazing. So the reason uh, I went, I wanted to cover it for Ingrace, and we did a YouTube show about it, where I was able to interview a bunch of people that were there, also got to interview the... uh, the Israeli uh, ambassador to the United Nations, Gilad Erdan, and uh, many other people. So uh, just to kind of create content and pro-Israel uh, content, I think is very important right now. Uh, we also brought a group from our church college and other folks joined in. A, a bus went out there too. So we had about 60 people from our ministry that were, were there standing with Israel. So it was just inspiring. It really was to uh, to be there to really minister to Jewish people. And and I'll I'll explain that in a minute, but they were touched. They were very, very impressed that Christians were there standing with them at this time. It certainly is the opportunity to be able to minister to Jewish people. We look at the news every day and we see some of these incredibly massive rallies in in London and in France. Um, You see different things taking place across the Arab world in support of not only the Palestinian cause, but the Hamas cause, which is really surprising considering what they did on October 7th. But it was heartwarming to hear that there were so many people there, Jews. I've heard that it was a majority of Jewish people, but there was definitely a Christian presence. Is that correct? Yes, I would say that that is accurate. Uh, We were uh, a large group, of course, there were other Christian groups that I saw, and we had signs that said uh, Christians standing with Israel. So it really identified our people that, and again, so what, what was happening, our Jewish uh, neighbors and friends, uh, Jewish Americans were coming by our group, and they would see the signs and, and just come over with tears in their eyes. And they were saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. That happened dozens of times. Uh, we had, I was doing an interview with a woman who runs a, a pro-Israel uh, organization. Her name is Shelly Neese with the Jerusalem Connection. And um, there was a man over, overhearing, listening to our interview, and he was Jewish. And when we get done, he's got tears in, her, in his eyes. He goes over and gives Shelly a huge hug uh, and just says, thank you, thank you, thank you for standing with us. And now she's, you know, she's crying, he's crying. It's just these amazing moments of, of love where the Jewish people haven't felt the Christians love as we should be loving them much at all throughout history, you know, quite the opposite often. 
But now we have these opportunities, and, and that was just the rally. We've had other opportunities at our church here in the Chicago area to do something similar. Uh, and we've had incredible chances to talk to people and express the love of Jesus and, and tell them that's why we're here. That's why we're standing with you right now. Well, that's wonderful. And so obviously it is very important to you and to your church and to your ministry, as it is to ours, to support the Jewish people in particular and to support the nation of Israel. If you could, just go into that a little bit more. Why do we support Israel? Why do we support the Jewish people? Well, to me, it's really simple. Uh, my Savior, my Messiah uh, is Jewish. It's, it's that simple. And to, to not show our love to his uh, earthly family, of course, we know he is God, but to not show our love to his, his kindred uh, people on this earth would be, I would feel wrong. Even if God were done with Israel, we know he's not, but even if he were, these people that believe in replacement theology, they should still love the Jewish people because we got our Savior from them and we got the scriptures from them. So to me, it's just so simple. Now, I also believe God is not done with the nation of Israel. Mm -hmm. I believe that once the, once the Lord returns in the air for the church and the rapture of the church happens, the, the 70th week of Daniel starts, the time clock starts back up in Daniel 70 weeks, the 70th week is still to be fulfilled. And we have this opportunity right now to stand with them and love them and know God isn't, God isn't done with them, Romans 9 through 11. I mean, it's so simple to me there as well. So there's many levels to the reason I love Israel, I love the Jewish people, and that this is the time because a lot of people are afraid. Maybe they think, well, we should support them, but I'm afraid. I don't, I don't want to have any problems. Well, you know, I preached last night about Peter and John and preaching at the temple after they had healed the lame man. And uh, they, they spoke the truth, and then they were grabbed by the, by the, uh, the temple guards, and uh, the Sadducees were upset. So Jesus predicted that. If you do right, if you love the Lord and follow the Lord, we, we may very well suffer persecution. But that's okay, right? Because uh, our Savior uh, was, uh, you would say, persecuted to the nth degree. And if we suffer a little bit, it's not, it's not a big deal. It's, it's the right thing to do. Well, that leads me to my final question for you. And you have talked about your love of Israel, your love of the Jewish people. You demonstrated your grasp of Bible prophecy. And that's what we do on this program. We focus on Bible prophecy because we see events taking place around the world that are setting the stage for the end time scenario. God gave us the gift of Bible prophecy to let us know where we stand, but he also gave it to motivate us. And if you look at your website at Ingrace Ministries, you have mission projects going on all over the world. Could you just, if you don't mind, before you go, just let us know how does Bible prophecy motivate you and create a sense of urgency for you to share the gospel to a, a lost and dying world? Well, we don't know when Jesus is going to return in the air. We don't know when that will be. And we, we know that I don't believe there's anything else that has to happen prophetically before he comes back. So now we, we see the signs of the times, obviously. We see 
you know, the world is joining together in, in many scary ways. And we see that the technology is there today to have a, a mark. And without that mark, you're not going to buy intelligence. So we see all of those things, but there's nothing that has to happen perfectly for the Lord to return. So therefore, it's an imminent, uh, it's the next event on God's calendar, and it could happen in a moment. And so what it does for me as a pastor and the people that I lead, I hope it is something that, that just in the back of my mind that I know today could be it. Today could be our last day to share the gospel. So I think it creates an, a sense of urgency. I remember when I was a kid and uh, my sister and I were left at home as we were getting a little bit older, we were told to you know, clean our room and then take out the garbage and a couple of things, make sure all of that's done before mom and dad came home. Well, we usually wouldn't get right to it. And so we would hear the car pull in or the garage door opening and we were scrambling uh, because we, we weren't prepared. We weren't ready. We weren't doing, you know, using the time wisely. Uh, I've learned more since uh, I was a kid. Uh, and I hope that just the idea that the Lord can come back at any moment and he's given us instructions, really clear, simple instructions to share the message of the gospel, it's a really simple message. Jesus is the Son of God. He died on a cross and rose again. And anyone who will believe in him, trust in him, will be saved. It's the simple message of hope. We've got to do as much as we can today because tomorrow might be the day that Jesus calls us home. Amen. What a great analogy. I, I, I have I probably a similar upbringing. And when Dad was about to get, get home, when our father was about to return, we kicked it into gear, and uh, you put that analogy out in front of us right now. We need to kick it into gear ourselves as we get out and share the gospel. Well, Jim Scudder, this is the first time you've been on the program, but we'd love to have you back again. Thank you for being on the program today, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Hey, Rick, thank you. And Jimmy, you guys uh, keep doing the good work that your dad started, and uh, it's awesome to be able to serve the Lord, and may God bless you guys richly. Jim, thank you. And yes, Rick, we did grow up that way. I remember when mom would say, your dad's on his way home and your room is not clean. Well, it is Thanksgiving, Rick, and uh, we want to take this time to remember Thanksgiving. And we go to our good friend, Pastor Paul Blair. And we do have Pastor Paul Blair with us today. Pastor Paul Blair, he's a former NFL uh, lineman who has been a pastor for close to 20 or over 20 years now at the Fairview Baptist Church in Oklahoma. And he's also the president of an organization called Reclaiming America for Christ. Paul, thank you for joining us today. Rick, always a pleasure. Love your dad, love the DeYoung family, and glad to be on with you. Well, thank you very much for those nice words. I have a couple of questions for you today, Pastor. But in the first one I want to talk to you about, and in your role as a pastor and with the uh, the Reclaiming America for Christ organization, can you talk to us? And I know you myself, we've spent a little bit of time together, and I know you to be a great patriot, but a Christian first. Sure. So if you could tell me, what role are Christians to play in politics? And, and essentially, how do we balance out our patriotic side with our Christian side? Well, obviously, the Bible is the standard for all truth. And that was what was so unique about the United States of America, is we had that biblical worldview. And, you know, pastors, especially at that time, we've kind of lost touch with it now, Rick. You know, we have, uh, Christianity has adopted a form of, of American Gnosticism, I would say, where we have compartmentalized our lives. You know, we have certain subjects that we can talk about in church, 
that there are other subjects that we can't talk about in church. You know, so we have our spiritual box, which is really very small. We talk about our missions program and vacation Bible school and soul winning and Sunday school. And then we have our secular lives where we live the vast majority. Well, that's not biblical at all. You know, from a Hebraic worldview, as the Apostle Paul conveyed in his traveling through Asia and preaching the gospel, you know, whatever we do, we're to glorify God in it. And most pastors would recognize that, that God established three institutions on planet Earth. God established the home, God established the church, and God established this realm called civil government. And he had a specific purpose for civil government and limitations for the civil government. They're not supposed to do everything. So, you know, the, the idea that we can't talk about civil government in church when we say that God is the one who established civil government is a contradiction. You know, whatever we do, we should be approaching from a biblical perspective whether that be our business ethics, our work habits, uh, our relationships to our husbands or wives, how we raise our children, the biblical standard and limitations of, of, of human sexuality, and quite frankly, what the civil government was supposed to be there for, in contrast, in comparison to, and quite frankly, supplemental to, self-government, family government, church government, and then there's the role of civil government. Well, beginning with John Robinson's influence on the pilgrims that settled at Plymouth, you know, 400 years ago, you know, they had this idea of, of church from a small group, from the, from the membership up, uh, where they would, uh, you know, choose their own pastors and create a covenant, church covenant and church bylaws and church constitution, which governed and sanctioned that church. You know, that was very unusual from the top-down dictatorial government of England and the same structure of church government. So when the pilgrims landed off course in November of 1620, their patent that they had received from England was of no value, so they were really in a state of anarchy. But these men, being so heavily influenced by the, by the preaching of Pastor John Robinson, knew that they had no hope of, of, of existing in the new world, in this wilderness of the new world, without staying unified together. So on November the 11th of 1620, they drafted the Mayflower Compact, which was the first time ever in history a group of equals constituted a limited general government and then pledged to be governed by the law. Well, from that grew the influence on all the settlers that came into Massachusetts, and again, that local congregational form of church government is what bled over to how they formed their, their political systems. And, of course, you had Roger Williams that came out of that group, and he settled Rhode Island. And, you, know, you had Thomas Hooker being given the patent to settle Connecticut. You know, these men were all pastors, and they were also brilliant political leaders, and they didn't consider it a contradiction. They applied a biblical perspective or a biblical worldview the proper role and limitations of, of civil government. So what we've enjoyed in America, you know, this American exceptionalism, where we all have the right to own property and buy and sell and trade, we all have the freedom to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the, uh, the dictates of, of the Holy Scripture as we read the Bible. And as a consequence of those truths, we've been able to enjoy liberty. And really, Rick, the only time in Christian history that we Christians haven't been persecuted for our faith. So what we have in America is unique, and it is an exceptional uh, country, but it's only because of that biblical foundation uh, 
that our forefathers built this system on. And, and sadly, as we are getting away, as we are, we are leaving biblical truth and being drawn toward this postmodernistic world that's being taught in our schools and, and promoted in the secular media, you know, we're, we literally are coming apart at the seams at this very moment. Boy, Paul, I love talking to you because you are such a wealth of information. <laughs> and, and I think about, that's the reason my dad asked you to be uh, on our video, uh, in America in Bible Prophecy. Yep. And, um, you know, there's, there's, there's several parts to that video. But the first part was uh, when you and my dad were in Plymouth, and you were talking about the role that Christianity played. And, and now, as we get to the time of Thanksgiving, we can kind of rehearse that and realize, like you said, those principles that have allowed us so many great freedoms. Well, that group in, in Plymouth, I, I admire greatly. You know, there are certain areas in our history, and America is the greatest nation in world history, in my opinion. Of course, you got old Israel, and of course, God's not done with Israel. I know what, you know, Brother Jimmy and I were, were in agreement largely in our eschatology, but, um, you know, America was, was so, we, we have been so blessed here in America, and there's three periods that I really love and admire. One is the Pilgrims, uh, then that era from 1740 with the Great Awakening through our Declaration of Independence and winning that war to secure our independence. So from about 1740 to 1785, you had a group of men that were on their face before God, begging God to, to bless them and direct them. And then my parents' generation, the World War II generation, when you had a bunch of innocent farm boys living in Missouri and Arkansas and Oklahoma, and all of a sudden, you know, America gets attacked, and they read it in the newspaper on December the 8th, and they all go down and sign up and enlist and we go to war against two professional armies, one Imperial Japan and, and one, uh, you know, Hitler's Germany. And in three and a half years, we win. You know, those eras just amaze me. But uh, the, the pilgrims were truly a, a miraculous group. You know, they had religious liberty when they had fled England and went to Holland. But obviously, Holland wasn't ideal. It wasn't. It didn't suit them economically, as they were farmers generally, and they were now working in textiles in a big city. So they didn't really love where they were at. You know, the the uh, the grace that was extended to them and the religious liberty, uh, they weren't entirely happy with some of the secular influences on their children. So that wasn't ideal for them in in Leiden, Holland. And then uh, there were some other reasons, but they were looking to move. But the primary reason they came to America, and it's stated in the Mayflower Compact, and it's also stated in um, uh, William Bradford's uh, history uh, called of Plymouth Plantation, but the, one of the main reasons they chose to, to leave Holland and come and start over in the United and what we now know as the United States was they wanted to evangelize the native population in North America. If Jesus is the only way to heaven, then it's important that the natives in North America need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the pilgrims were so genuine in their faith. I mean, they didn't just talk it on Sundays. They lived it in every facet of their lives. So their credibility among, with Massasoit and the Wampanoag Indians and all the others over here was so strong. They were such principled men and women of integrity that uh, the, the, the Wampanoag tribe embraced uh, the religion of the white man. In fact, um, you know, there's a, a, a little-known story. Sadly, our history books don't teach this anymore. 
but uh, there was a, a warrior named Habamak that was sent to keep an eye on Squanto, as Squanto was basically babysitting our pilgrim forefathers. And Habamak actually, you know, Squanto died in 1622, and Habamak continued to have a relationship with the pilgrims. He was so taken by the God of the white man that he became a Christian. In fact, he built a village next to Plymouth, so you had Habamak's village adjacent to Plymouth, and the Indians and the white men just they well, they went back and forth. As a matter of fact, uh, Winslow wrote in a in a an account that he had sent back to England that they felt safer walking amongst the Indians and in their communities than they did walking the streets of England. So the influence on Christianity in that in the New World was amazing. So uh, I just um, I just encourage. I tell you what, a, a good friend of mine runs an organization up in uh, Plymouth. Uh, his name is Dr. Paul Jaley. Uh, Paul is president of, of a group called Plymouth Rock Foundation. So I would encourage any of your listeners, they want to get some good history on the pilgrims, go to Plymouth, PlymouthRock.org and do some research because there's an abundance of, of truths there about our pilgrim forefathers that we all need to know. Uh, they, were, they were largely to be admired. Absolutely so, and in fact, this is such an appropriate time of the year to remember that as we are yeah. getting ready for Thanksgiving. Well, one, and I've just got a brief moment here, but on Prophecy Today, as you know, we deal with current events in the light of God's prophetic word, and sometimes the events that are taking place around the world can be satanic events, mm-hmm. and so sometimes we deal with a lot of heavy issues and a lot of tough subjects, but I know at this time of the year, uh, as a pastor, you're preparing a message for Thanksgiving, and I just would like to know what you are preparing to tell your people um, as we come to this special time of the year. You know, those pilgrims had endured 66 days at sea, below deck, on a small ship that was literally rocking back and forth from one side to the other. Uh, no privacy, no place to cook a hot meal, uh, no privacy to go to the bathroom, the seasickness, the amazing uh, hardships that they endured just to land at Cape Cod in the middle of winter and with no Holiday Inn Express or Hampton Inn to greet them. Uh, they endured that first winter, and although they 102 successfully crossed the North Atlantic, 47 died over the next four months. And they get through to March, and uh, miraculously they're still there. Uh, the Mayflower returns. Nobody goes back to England. And about the same day the Mayflower departed is when Samoset and Squanto come walking into camp on back-to-back days. You know, think about this. Here they are in the middle of North America, and all of a sudden you have an English-speaking Indian that loves white people and knows the ways of the white people that shows up in camp. And really, if not for Squanto, they never would have made it. Well, after that first year, they learned how to plant and how to harvest. God had blessed them, and it was obvious that they were going to make it coinciding with the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. The pilgrims had a feast thanking God and celebrating his provision over that year. And, of course, it was a difficult year when you consider the entirety of it, the trip, the loss of life. But here they were. They had established a home, and they'd been blessed with this first harvest. And they celebrated, and the Wampanoag, some 90 braves, along with their wives and children, came 
and they ate deer and turkey and ate everything in sight and fellowshiped and shot guns and had foot races and wrestling matches. Three days of eating and fellowship, and that was the first Thanksgiving. But one thing I tell our people is Pastor John Robinson was the pastor of the pilgrims, and he mentored them and trained them and prepared them for this journey. And he, he gave them three parts of, points of advice before they took off uh, leaving uh, Old England. He said, first of all, you guys are going to have some difficult times. Make sure your sin closet is empty. Make sure you recognize that you're just going to experience some difficulties because they're difficult. Don't bring any additional obstacles on yourself because of your own disobedience. So stay prayed up, stay, keep your sin closet empty, and stay repented of sin. Then the second thing he said was don't intentionally offend one another and don't be thin-skinned and be easily offended. Because going through times of stress, it is imperative that we stay unified as a church body. And that's what Paul says in Hebrews 10. We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together uh, so we can encourage one another and provoke unto love and to good works. So Pastor Robinson, knowing how stressed they were going to be that next year, a year and a half, two years, as they crossed the North Atlantic and settled in the New World, gave those three pieces of advice that was sage counsel to hold that church together. And quite frankly, it's applicable to us. And in a tough year where we're facing all these threats and we see the World Economic Forum doing their nonsense and uh, the, the, the fear of, of the virus spread and everything else, we're under a lot of pressure here now. We need to apply those same three instructions to our lives as Christians in our day, just as relevant for us today as they were in 1620. Such great advice. Thank you so much for being with us. I look forward to having you back again with us sometime soon. My pleasure, Rick. God bless you. Excellent half hour of information. We've got to take a break, and when we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with my brother, Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, it's the week before Thanksgiving, and you know what that means. I certainly do, Jimmy. Christmas is right around the corner. It comes after Thanksgiving, but we don't want to overlook Thanksgiving because that's a great time for the family. And Jimmy, if I could, I could talk about just a little bit. Thanksgiving is also a time when many people think about giving to ministries and organizations. If you would be interested in doing that, we would appreciate not only your support, but also your prayers. And then also, Jimmy, if you go to our website, we have a bookstore. There is nothing better that you can give than the gift of understanding Bible prophecy. If you have people in your life that would appreciate books, DVDs, or CDs that help them to get a better understanding of Bible prophecy, go to our bookstore at prophecytoday.com. That's right, prophecytoday.com. I had lots of people ask me about the Jews and the Palestinians situation. Where did it begin? Esau and the Palestinians, it's a great uh, DVD. Why don't you get that and help uh, others understand? And it's a great gift that always keeps giving. Well, we're beginning a brand new study today, a study that has a significant connection to current events in our world today. This study will look into the scriptures to see how the return of Jesus Christ to the earth will actually take place. However, first, we need to look at what Jesus said would happen 
before his second coming. The Lord told us what to look for leading up to his second coming in the Olivet Discourse. Take your Bibles and let's go to Matthew chapter 24 to begin our study with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Take your Bibles and let's go now to the book of Matthew chapter 24. Book of Matthew chapter 24. While you're going to Matthew 24, let me lay out for you this timeline that I've used for a number of years for the purpose of, as I'm teaching, giving the people a visual in front of them so they can see how the end times are going to unfold. I would say the wall is 6,000 years ago, and in six 24-hour days, Jesus Christ created the heavens and the earth, and all that in them is at that period of time, about 6,000 years ago. Come along for 4,000 years, Jesus Christ comes, lives, died, buried, resurrects, goes to heaven. Have a 2,000-year distance between that event and the next event, which is the rapture of the church. Jesus shouts, archangel shouts, trouble God sounds, and we're out of here to be with him. That event's the next event to happen. It can happen at any moment. There's a seven-year period of time after that called the tribulation period. This will be Revelation 4 to 19, 16 chapters, detailed information about this terrible time of judgment, the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus Christ gets on a white horse, steps out of the heavenlies, and we come with him back to the earth. He plants his feet on the Mount of Olives in the city of Jerusalem. After the Battle of Armageddon, there's a thousand-year millennial kingdom when Jesus Christ will be the head of a theocracy here on the earth, and that's for a thousand-year period of time. At the end of that, the great white throne judgment, at which time Jesus will be the judge. He'll sentence those rejecting him in the lake of fire, which is a second death. And then eternity future, new heavens, new earth, and New Jerusalem, and that would be Revelation chapters 21 and 22. As you get a handle on the book of Revelation, you're going to become very aware of the fact that when Jesus gave his Olivet Discourse on Monday afternoon of Passion Week, before he had been crucified in a couple of the days, that Jesus Christ in the Olivet Discourse, especially recorded in Matthew chapter 24, was laying out actually the book of Revelation. He was laying all the details out that would unfold in that period of time that John the Revelator would be talking about in the book of Revelation. And so when you go to the book of Matthew chapter 24 and look at it, we can see how things are going to end in this period of history after the tribulation. Look with me at Matthew 24. Let me just remind you, Matthew 24 is not in any way referring to the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is not found in Matthew 24. First of all, the rapture of the church is for the people of the church, and the church has not even been established yet. It comes into place in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And so when Jesus is talking to a group of Jews and maybe some Gentiles, he's not talking about the church and what's going to happen with them. In fact, the question is asked specifically by these men who have been traveling with him for a number of years. Look what he says here in verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming? The sign of thy coming. Now let me tell you something else. 
Christians are not looking for signs of the coming. We're listening for a sound that will bring us to be with him in the heavenlies at the rapture of the church. And so as we look at the scriptures, we must discern that this is not talking about the rapture of the church. These are going to be signs given to the Jewish people leading up to his second coming. Now notice verse 4, and here's the most significant, most important sign, the number one sign that Jesus will give. Verse 4, and Jesus answered, and he said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying that I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Look at verse 11, and many false prophets shall arise, and shall deceive many. Verse 24, for there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. The number one sign that Jesus gives about his soon coming, the second coming, not the rapture, because the rapture is separated from the second coming by a seven-year period of time, but we're talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ and the number one sign, deception. Verse 24 says the way he will communicate that deception will be through signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, signs, wonders, and miracles are prevalent in our world today, especially among so-called Christendom. I mean, you can turn only any Christian, so-called Christian TV network and see all kinds of signs, wonders, and miracles. Don't think that I don't believe that Jesus Christ or God the Father or the Holy Spirit can not perform miracles. I believe they can do whatever they want to. I don't tell them what they can do, but I do tell you what they say. And this is what Jesus said. This is going to be an evidence you can recognize that I'm soon to be coming back to the earth. By the way, that corresponds with the first sealed judgment in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, which would be the man on the white horse, which is uh, the appearance of the Antichrist. Now here in chapter 24, again, in verse uh, 6, you see, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That corresponds with the second seal of judgment in Revelation chapter 6. And that would be verses 3 and 4. A man on a red horse who comes and takes peace from the earth. And when you take peace then you have war. Going on in verse 7. And there shall be famines. The third seal of judgment. A man on a black horse in chapter 6 coming forth and famine. Famine is rampant throughout the world. We don't understand that in this uh, uh, this nation, even though we're economically in trouble, we still don't understand how it would be to be starving to death. Probably at any of the mills that you will have today, you'll have more food than they will have most likely in a week of any part of their life. Famines he brings up into attention and it corresponds with that uh, judgment of the black horse in Revelation chapter 6. Pestilence. Pestilence is one of those old King James words. Had to look it up to see what it meant. I have a dictionary uh, written by uh, Noah Webster. It's an 1828 publication of this dictionary. And Noah Webster had the whole purpose in that dictionary of defining every word in the King James Bible. And so I went back to that and found out pestilence means pandemic disease. Pandemic disease leading to death. 
That would be the fourth sealed judgment in Revelation chapter 6 when one-fourth of the earth's population is going to die. Earthquakes and in diverse places these earthquakes unfolding. In fact, there was a, I I think a 4.6 earthquake in Israel just this last week. So earthquakes in diverse places increasing as we move towards the the coming the second coming of jesus christ notice here in verse 15 it talks about something very important he's giving the people a warning about the abomination of desolation when ye shall therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet daniel stand in the holy place whoso readeth he him let him understand then let them which be in judea flee unto the mountains The abomination of desolation is talking about when a temple stands at the midway point of the tribulation period. The Antichrist is going to walk into the temple, 2 Thessalonians 2.4. He'll walk into the Holy of Holies. He will sit down to be worshipped at that particular location. This is exactly what the one who has energized him had in mind. Satan, according to Revelation chapter 13, energizes, giving his power and seat of authority to the Antichrist. And Satan said in Isaiah chapter 14, in five of his I wills, one of them, I will be worshipped in Jerusalem. And so Antichrist walks into the temple. He sits down there, and indeed he is going to be involved in getting the worship, which is the abomination of desolation. Once he has received that worship at the midway point, he's going to leave there. They'll put a statue that is able to talk and to move in there, and everybody in the world will be called on to worship that particular statue. And so again, we see all of these things unfolding. Now, and this is just going in almost perfect coordination with the book of Revelation. And if I had the time, I would just go back and forth between the two. I'm simply trying to introduce something to you. What leads up to the second coming of Christ? As we go now to verse 29 of Matthew 24, we see what does follow this seven-year period of time. Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. This is going to be at the time of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation period. A number six seal in chapter six of the book of Revelation is a similar activity, but this will be only intensified. And in fact, we'll see this unfolding in the vile judgments that are unfolding in chapter 16 of the book of Revelation when we see the sun becoming so hot it scorches men uh, so that they even gnaw their teeth in uh, gnaw their tongue with their teeth in pain. Uh, but immediately after the tribulation he says this happens. Now look at verse 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is talking about the second coming of Christ. All of humankind does not see 
at the rapture of the church, Jesus Christ. In fact, he is in the heavenlies to a certain extent, uh, somewhere in the air, somewhere in space, and we're caught up to be with him at that time. And so this is a different event than the rapture of the church, again, to give emphasis to that. Verse 31, and he shall send his angels. Now notice this, please. Make note of this. We'll come back to it. And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. There will be a trumpet sound. I have a book entitled Sound the Trumpets, which is plural. The trumpet that will bring the church, the Christian community into his presence at the rapture will be sounded at before the tribulation period starts. When Jesus Christ comes back, he turns to an angel, tells him to take a trumpet and blow it and in essence call a solemn assembly, bringing all the Jews from out of every four corners of the earth, of the earth and into the heavens and bring them to be with him there. There are two trumpet sounds of great significance in the future. One at the second coming of Jesus Christ. But the next trumpet sound will be the one at the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 to 18. That's the sound, not the sign, but the sound that we are waiting for. The trumpet sound to take us up to be with Jesus in the heavenlies. We could hear that sound today. Make sure you're ready for that trumpet sound by knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. You know, with this week being Thanksgiving, that means Christmas is right around the corner. In our Legacy Series in the weeks to come, we'll be telling the Christmas story as Dr. DeYoung rehearses Bethlehem beyond the Christmas story. That's coming up. Well, we've got to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will talk about Thanksgiving, and we do hope that your family has a great Thanksgiving this year. There's so much to be thankful for. We'll be right back, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Myanmar's junta government faces its biggest challenge since taking power in a 2021 coup. Three rebel groups formed an alliance in late October. Today, they're gaining ground against government forces. Armed ethnic groups have been fighting Myanmar's central government for greater autonomy for decades. AMG International works alongside local Christians to deliver help and hope in the name of Jesus. Then, believers in Ghana, West Africa, are using the Jesus film to reach unreached people groups within their borders. Samuel Afrifa with One Way Africa travels to some of the most remote parts of northern Ghana. Since 2017, he and a small band of missionaries have reached more than 380,000 people with this evangelistic film. Over 43,000 have responded in faith to Christ. Join One Way Africa in praying for God to raise up more missionary writers, plus the support needed for this critical ministry outreach. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. 
every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with my brother, Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, this week is the week before, the couple days before Thanksgiving. And we've talked about this on this program. Great interview with Pastor Paul Blair. Uh, He's a great friend of our family, great friend of dad's over the years, very knowledgeable on the pilgrims. And I know that Pastor Blair explained about the pilgrims. Did you know, Rick, that the original Thanksgiving celebration was held by the Pilgrim settlers in Massachusetts during their second winter in America in December of 1621? The first winter had killed 44 of the original 102 colonists. At one point, their daily food ration was down to five kernels of corn apiece. Wow, how times have changed. But then an unexpected trading vessel arrived, swapping them beaver pelts for grain, providing for their severe need. The next summer's crop brought hope, and Governor William Bradford decreed that December 13, 1621, be set aside as a day of feasting and prayer to show the gratitude of the colonists that they were still alive. Isn't that an amazing time? And, and in the time in which we're celebrating Thanksgiving sometimes now, uh, times have changed, haven't they? They certainly have. We're going to have more than five kernels of corn apiece <laughs> for sure on our Thanksgiving Day. But it does uh, look to our uh, our heritage and our roots here in this country as we go forward and, and the way this country was put together. And we've talked about this. We've been in Plymouth with Paul Blair and Dad as we shot the video. And it was just so interesting to rehearse the fact, the trust that the, those first pilgrims had in scripture and how they were planning on forming a government underneath biblical principles, at least at the beginning anyways. You know, that first government that they used to establish, and a lot of these pilgrims, as Pastor Blair said, they used the scriptures in forming their first government. Scripturally, we find things related to the issue of thanksgiving nearly from cover to cover. Individuals offer up sacrifices out of gratitude in the book of Genesis, Rick. The Israelites sang a song of thanksgiving as they were delivered from Pharaoh's army after the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 15. Later, the Mosaic law set aside three times each year when the Israelites were to gather together, going up to Jerusalem, making Aliyah up to the city of Jerusalem. All three of these times, unleavened bread, also called the Feast of the Passover, In Exodus chapter 12, the harvest or Pentecost, that's in Leviticus chapter 23, and the feast of ingathering or tabernacles, which, by the way, we're going to be celebrating in the future during the millennial period. They involved remembering God's provision and grace. And this time of the year, we really should take time out when we do Thanksgiving to remember those pilgrims in Plymouth in 1621, as they were just giving thanks for being alive. But I think as we move forward, 
we as the body of Christ, as the church, should give thanks for the times in which we're living, shouldn't we? We sure should, Jimmy. And then you look back at it and you talked about those pilgrims and you talk about the fact that uh, they laid down biblical principles that we are now reaping the benefits of. They had helped us to establish the nation that we live in right now. Now we've gotten away from some of those biblical principles, but we are still a very blessed nation and a very blessed people. And what blessings we do have come from where we have adhered to God's Word. Yes. I'm reminded in the New Testament, I mean, you know, we've talked about the Old Testament, and I think those pilgrims use the Old Testament a lot for forming themselves as a government, as a body, uh, as believers that were praying each and every day, thanking God for whatever they had for that day. But I'm reminded, uh, and I want to encourage Christians today always to rejoice Pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 and 18. I also want to say, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. That's Philippians 4, 6. And Rick, when you say, be anxious for nothing, man, we live in a day where people are anxious about the future. Mm. I want to remind people what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving you thanks be made for all men. And really, Rick, that's a, a pattern for praying for all of us today. When we pray, we are to pray and, and uh, bring the needs of others, supplying our needs, praying our prayers interceding on the behalf of others and of giving of thanks that should be for all men. That's right, Jimmy. And also, I think we should focus at this time of the year, when you talk about Thanksgiving, we talk about God's plan through the ages for us here. And we talk about the Old Testament pointing towards the most important event in all of history, mm. the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even now, as we continue on into the future, all that we do points back to that one time that we should give thanks for this gift, this gift that is given, and what must we do to accept this gift? Yes. We like the pilgrims, Rick. We have a choice, don't we? In life, there will always be those things that we can complain about. The pilgrims had lost many loved ones. But there's also much to be thankful for. And I think this year, uh, as we come to Thanksgiving, I want to encourage all of us to be thankful for what God has given us, life, family, the pursuit of happiness. I mean, you could go on and on, couldn't you? Absolutely. So much to be thankful for. This is the time of the year where we're giving thanks. And during our annual Thanksgiving holiday, it sometimes can be overlooked you know, really football, the gathering of the family together. But may God grant that he may find us grateful every day for all of his gifts, spiritual and material. God is good, Rick. What is it we say? God is good all the time. All the time. Yeah. And all the time, God is good. Mm -hmm. God is good and every good gift comes from him. That's James chapter 1, verse 17. For those who know Christ, God also works everything together for good, even events we would not necessarily consider to be good. May he find each and every single one of us to be his grateful children. Rick, happy Thanksgiving to you and to your family. Next week, 
We'll focus on the demise of America, but this week we wanted to focus on being thankful, and I hope that you have a great Thanksgiving, Rick. Likewise to you and yours, Jimmy. Yes. Folks, so much is happening in our world. We use Bible prophecy to help us to understand the times in which we're living and again to live a pure, productive, holy life in an unholy world. With so much that's happening in our world, we encourage you to keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.